this is Dustin, and you found the Kook Jester Show. Hello, and welcome to Kook Jester, everybody. My guest today is Brent Dispro, game director at BCOM Studios. I absolutely loved this interview. I learned a ton, and he is so freaking funny. Brent talks about changing careers, he opens by breaking down the Justice League movie, we get into all things video game related, and Brent even provides an interesting countertake on NFTs and blockchain technology. This is just a quick ask, if you like what we're doing at Kookchester, please subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform, and if you love this interview with Brent, please share it with your friends and your family. So here is Brent. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. So I guess we can start anytime. Cool. Brent, welcome to the Coop Jester Show. I am very happy that you are here. Thanks. Um, it's uh, my first time doing one of these things. So yeah, very excited. Well, I'm glad that we are able to do this live in the studio or also known as your basement. <laughs> so so we, got a, we got a nice setting. Please don't take any offense to what I'm going to say. A big part of the reason why I enjoy your company and chatting with you is because you are the least adult adult that I know. Because you do for a living all the things we're supposed to leave behind as a kid. Like you develop games, like you have a passion for board games and comics and superhero movies and you just love this stuff. Like I could ask a typical adult and he's like, hey, what did you think about Spider-Man No Way Home? And they'll be like, you know, it was alright. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas I talk to you and you're like, oh my God, it was so awesome. I could literally be chatting with my 14-year-old nephew. Like it, it, it is so good and so refreshing. So I just wanted to get that out of the way that I appreciate what you bring to the world. So thanks. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, yeah, it's a joke I make about myself often is like, uh, you know, my sister, my younger sister, she's much more of the emo- emotionally mature. Yeah. So I, I'm physically 52, yeah. but mentally 15 or 16. Yeah. The things I do, like the yeah. you know, working in game development, for me, it's very much fed by the passions that I have outside of work, mm. you know. And so there's a nice kind of virtuous circle there where the things I enjoy doing feed into the things I work at so I can earn money to get more money for things I enjoy yeah. doing. <laughs> so no, I, no I, I don't take offense to it at all. I must say that sometimes it, it leads to definitely uh, inner awkwardness in adult conversation kind of settings. I don't frequently have a lot of people that I can talk to about the passions that I have, yeah. about the about the entertainment passions I have. Yeah. And so it's always fun to have, you know, meet, you know, chat with somebody who's got enthusiasm for all things, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is so, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome as well. So just in like, cause I know you like the world that you're in, like your, your work world. And so this ratio might be different, but I'm just even looking at like our group of friends that we know, including yourself, there's probably like two or three other like diehard comic fans. What's the pull? Like, why is it enduring when... You know, you could say like, you know, that's something I did when I was 10 kind of thing. I mean, I, I, I've loved comics my entire life. I started comics like with the Archies. Um, I think my godfather had, he had daughters and they had Archie comics and I would sort of read them. And then at one point I found a big box, you know, like one of those medium sized moving boxes mm-hmm. full of comics that I think an aunt or uncle had or something. And mm-hmm. they, they let me, they gave it to me big treasure trove of comics. And that was it. I was off to the races at that point. 
uh, you know, my favorite heroes are like Batman and Wolverine. There's something really alluring about the power fantasy of comics that really hooked me on early on. Mm. And then as I got older, new authors kind of started doing their thing, new writers for comics and new artists, you know, stuff like Frank Miller and The, the Dark Knight, right? He, so he did a, a, his own reinterpretation of Batman, which was mind-blowing. Uh, Alan Moore, it was another writer, he did stuff like The Watchmen, but he also had a run on Swamp Thing. Grant Morrison, sorry, is another yeah. author I love, Warren Ellis. And they've written comics that are really sophisticated, and they sort of examine the meta structures of what a superhero comic is. So they ask questions like, well, what would the headspace of a guy who dresses up like a bat be during the day, during the rest of the time? What kind right. of mental and emotional load would Batman slash Bruce Wayne carry? Who's the real Batman? Is Batman the mask or is Bruce Wayne the mask? And those started getting interesting to me because their love, their engagement levels that looking at a comic very easy to sort of dismiss and say, well, it's pretty pictures. Yeah. And Biff Bop Kamal, yeah. right? Uh, Adam West was an awesome Batman on the TV series, and, and I, had, I actually got a chance to meet him once, and he was so nice. Like it was at a dinner party down in Idaho, and he was so nice, and he he never you know looked down on his yeah. career as Batman kind of stuff. Same like even Christopher Reeves and Superman. You know, never looked down on it. It was sort of like, yeah, this was a really cool thing. It was a role I had and mm -hmm. I don't regret it at all. And so that was always really interesting that like here are these actors invest in these things that are loved by their fans and they can see the, the adult appealing themes within them. And I think that you kind of saw a difference in cinematic superhero movies. You know, Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi version mm -hmm. with Tobey Maguire. That was probably the first big one. There was some stuff before that. You know, that was kind of getting into more interesting places with right. the superheroes. But that's, I think, generally the, the big one um, that kind of really got the ball rolling, certainly for Marvel films. You know, Batman Begins, I thought, did a, a wonderful job of retelling the Batman mythos after kind of Joel Schumacher had totally destroyed it with, yeah. you know, Batman and Robin and, and nipples on the bat suit and goofy cameos like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I mean, I love Mr. Freeze as a villain. He's one of my favorite Batman villains. Arnold Schwarzenegger's version, not my favorite yeah. interpretation. Yeah, of yeah it. fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, so you had sort of two tracks there uh, that kept me hooked. One was kind of like, okay, the increasingly adult themes being woven into the writing of the comics and then these cinematic universes, cinematic experiences, because uh, I think this was all pr prior to the cinematic universe that kind of Marvel created with Iron Man. Plus, I'm a big fan of pulp fiction. Not the movie, but like yeah. actually pulp novels like Doc Savage, The Shadow. Like these are things way before my time. I'm not that old, you know, but I love listening to like The Shadow radio plays. You know, Orson Welles did radio yeah. plays for it. And they're awesome. Like the voice acting, you know, and then the ads in between where they're like, they talk about selling you coal for very cheap prices for your home stoves, you know, for your home furnaces. <laughs> you know, yeah. this summer, use this coal. It's blue coal. There's a vibe there with, with that entertainment that really I, I find very enjoyable. And comics are another form of pulp novels. Who is Smash McGavin? And then taking what you've just said, and why was he so disappointed with uh, the Justice League movie? <laughs> so, okay. so Smash McGavin, uh, <laughs> I can't remember where I came up with that name. I, I think it was sort of like... <laughs> It was my own version of a, of a goofy pulp name. And I didn't want to do like the, you know, okay, your poor name is the name of the street you grew up on and your favorite fruit. Or so I didn't want to do anything like that, yeah. <laughs> you know? And there was also a bit of McBain. 
right the simpsons right burn yes you know so anyways uh so Justice League, I think, obviously a, a solid film, tons of production d- troubles. Zack Snyder was directing it initially, partway through production. There was a family tragedy, mm-hmm. so he had to step back from it. The writer-creator of the Buffy the T- Vampire Slayer TV series had done an amazing job for the Marvel Universe with Avengers and Avengers yes. 2. So they brought him in to sort of save the, save the film. And at the end of the day, what came out of that was something that wasn't very good. It wasn't cohesive. It didn't feel holistic. There were a lot of characters being juggled, but it was a lot of self-serious, missing the point to me as a, as a particular fan, but also just like nonsensical writing. Just like, why are they doing this? It doesn't make sense. Things don't link up. And then fast forward, I don't know how many years, 10 years later, they do the Zack Snyder cut. And what happened was there was this sort of outcry from fans, you know, later revealed to be mostly bots on Twitter. It's like most of the traffic that drove the Zack Snyder cut was bot driven. Really? Yeah. So Warner Brothers is like, okay, well, I guess we gotta do a, you know, throw another seventy million dollars at this film, and we'll let Zack Snyder do his thing. And it went from being sort of a mess to more cohesive, but also too much. Because this thing's like four hours. Isn't it's like it? four hours, and it's pretentious as hell. It's so self serious, and the story it tells it, it makes more sense. It's still not a good story. Like the villains are very weak in their motivations. And if you're not familiar with the DC Universe, they're just CGI muscle men, basically. Like one of my favorite villains of all time in movies is Hans Gruber from Die Hard. Alan Rickman kills it, yeah. right? He kills it with a character that at the surface level is very shallow. He's a thief. He pretends to be a terrorist. Ooh. But he injects a lot of character to that guy and a lot of interesting interplay between the hero and the villain. And this is actually a problem with most superhero movies. Is the villains have very loosely sketched out motivations that more often than not are sort of like just surface level. They wronged me. I want to. But a good character arc is one where the character at the end has grown from where they were at the start. And if they don't grow, that's not a character arc. That's just a character snapshot, really static right. picture yeah. of that character. And sometimes that works, uh, but other times it doesn't. And when you have something like Justice League where the villain is so important to it, and, and you have an audience that has no idea who that villain is. Nobody outside of the comic world and outside of the DC comic world mm-hmm. has really any idea who Darkseid is. And beyond the fact that he kind of looks like Thanos, but Thanos was already on the market. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's sort of like, oh, but Darkseid isn't as cool as Thanos. So, so yeah, it was a bit of a mess. You know, when you look at something like that, that probably all in had, I, I don't know exactly, but I'm sure it had a development budget north of $300 million. Okay, was that worth it? Could you have made a whole bunch of indie films? Could you have made something else, a better written film? Warner Brothers canceled Batgirl recently. Basically canceled it. It's nearly finished, right? They've already spent $85 million on it. And they canceled it for what is essentially a tax write-off. <laughs> and there's all kinds of weird content cuts going on at Warner Brothers. And that $70 million they spent for Zack Snyder's cut could have gone to, to that things, thing, right? Yeah. But they needed a big showpiece for HBO Max, and that's what the Justice League Snyder Cut was. Here's a movie that we're not going to do a theatrical release for, but we need content for HBO Max because it's launching into a very competitive, already filled market with Disney Plus mm-hmm. and Netflix and Shudder and Hulu and all these other places for people to spend their entertainment dollars. HBO Max needs to be a big splash, and so I think they're fine with it then. But whatever, two, three years later, they're like, oh, Batgirl, which was being made for HBO Max, not for theatrical release. Uh, That doesn't fit the bill anymore. New boss. 
Yeah, because I got through maybe an hour and a half of it. This is going to take me a few nights to watch. The way it started, like I liked the dark setting. I liked that they're just kind of figuring it out. I didn't mind Ben Affleck as yeah, he's Batman. Solid. Jason Momoa. Great. And then it's Gal Gadot. They toned down their superhero-ness and became more of like an investigative team. So I liked where it was going, but I have no idea what happens after. Yeah. yeah. But it started out strong. You know, one of the, my favorite things about the Justice League comics was when they came together. Not really when they were doing their big brawls, mm -hmm. but when they came together and figured stuff out or were split apart and had to figure out to come back and team up and leverage each other's strengths. Bit of that during that investigative part, mm -hmm. you know, like it's like, okay, Gal Gadot, you know, cool. She's got her kind of the way she thinks about stuff. Mm -hmm. Batman kind of doing his thing, gathering people. Jason Momoa just kind of like wreaking havoc like a big, yeah, yeah. big drunk buddy. And he's amazing. I, <laughs> yeah. like, I love Aquaman. Uh, Aquaman is a movie that has no right being as fun and good as it is. But he kills it in that movie. And it, yeah, so it was, it was really fun to see you know, he, the energy he brings in, into that partnership in Justice League was, was nice. All right. So I got some questions about what you do. I noticed that you have a Bachelor of Commerce and... Then we have what you do now. So I'm thinking there may be like a complete 180 or the heavens opened and showed you the error of your ways when you were an investment banker or an accountant. Was it a straight line from like cutting your thumbs on Atari and Nintendo NES to game development? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, that's a great question. Because <laughs> I, mean, I, I joke about it a lot. My career path you know, I went to school, studied commerce. My specialization is transportation and logistics. So like that part of the marketing equation, you know, getting the right product to the right place at the right time. And while I was in school, you know, I was also working at, uh, you know, my dad is a stockbroker. So I was in, I was sort of exposed to that world early on, you know, in the summers, like I was working at a discount brokerage, answering the phone and, and taking borders and passing them on to the brokers, you know, for official input. Mm. And so that was, it's a fun, exciting world. And when I came out of university, okay, I'm like, okay, well, I had an opportunity to work at my dad's firm. It sounds like a nepotism angle. Not totally, because uh, I was I basically joined them as an analyst, sort of analyst in training. So I had mm -hmm. a, a woman who was teaching me the ropes kind of stuff. It was really exciting because two aspects to it. One was learning new stuff and then analyzing that stuff. And sometimes the analysis was just number crunching. And sometimes that analysis was people crunching, if you right, will, yeah. by talking to people, getting information from them, and then interpreting that. And how does that play out against the numbers? And so like, it was like an investigative finance almost, right? You know, I was already a big gamer, finished day of work, and then go home and play games. And, you know, the investment markets, like I'd be at work at like 6.30 a.m. And so I'd be, the market closes at 1.30 p.m. And then I'd stay till like 2.30 or 3.30 and then I'd have the rest of the day to myself. Yeah, so I was doing that and unsurprisingly because of all my love for uh, games, I was focusing on the technology uh, sector. So I was working a lot with technology companies. I would visit Electronic Arts out in Burnaby, pitching that as a stock that the brokers should invest in yeah. because they, these game things, they're really going to catch on. But it was challenging because the majority of the investments, the gross majority was in natural resources. But it made my job harder you know, to sell them on technology stories because they didn't understand it. They didn't have a real passion for it. But then with that stuff too, there's things like a high price earnings ratio or no earnings or a loss making company. So that would be a hard sell when you have these traditional industries which are pulling stuff out of the ground, be it copper, gold, iron. Yeah. And that makes sense to a lot of people. 
it was a lot easier for these guys to understand that. Where I was and the woman I was working with, she was brilliant. And we both saw the writing on the wall in terms of technology companies. So we could see that technology stuff was going to blow up. But this was still in the early mm-hmm. days. Like this is like Windows, Windows 3.1 yeah. kind of stuff. Just the general understanding of technology as a sector wasn't there. It was still very much developing. And, you know, some of the companies there were full on like operating at a loss. EA wasn't one of them. EA was making money already. Now there's another disconnect, right? Not only is it technology, it's video games. Are those those things that my son plays or do you know what I mean? Or that I hear about, you know, as an entertainment sector, earnings sector, it wasn't there. It was early days. You know, like now games earn way more money than movies do Mm -hmm. as a sector worldwide. Games make more money. And the ratios are really attractive. Like the uh, cost of investment is pretty low. Uh, risk return ratio is pretty high. Like if you have a hit, let's say you spend 20 million bucks on, on a title and it hits, you can make 100 million. You can, you, you can make way more than uh, a movie often right. can make, right? Yeah. It's, it was very attractive, but it was a tough sell. So I was kind of fighting a bit of an uphill battle. And then I'd go home and play games. And I'd be playing these games. And I'm like, man, I'm not enjoying this game. I'm not enjoying this game because of these decisions that the creators made. So I was getting to the end of my tether in this finance job, which was great, paid amazingly, but wasn't creatively fulfilling at all. And I sort of got to the point where I'm like, well, maybe I should put up or shut up. I'm constantly criticizing games. And this was like when I was 27. I'm young enough, I could jump ship basically yep. and go over to this other career. So that's what I did. I had some connections at Electronic Arts. Yep. So I, I called up to them. I said, hey, I want to join your industry. How can I do it? And they said, well, let's watch you have lunch. And I met with the executive producer who at the time was running FIFA, NHL, and Triple Play Baseball, I think. Big sports yeah. franchises. Not too long down the road, they start doing Need for Speed. So yeah, so I, I had lunch with this guy. He's like... I've got spaces for producers on soccer or hockey. What do you want? I'm not a sports guy, like a team sports guy. Like I enjoy watching it, but I don't follow, not a lot of passion for that stuff. I'd seen a lot of hockey. Yeah. You know, Canadian. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So I'm like, well, I know I'd be interested in soccer, you know, football. And he's like, okay, cool. Watch me with the EP of that. And that's what I did. And he sent me off and I had to write an essay as to the future of sports games. So I did. And, And while I was doing that, I also was taking the winter off and skiing at Whistler. So I just stayed up at Whistler and was skiing every day. And I was working at a ski shop. So lots of time to think and yeah, figure yeah. it out. Yeah, cool. Like play games and stuff. And <laughs> and, <laughs> or that. Yeah. And that too. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I wrote a, an essay and then I, I got in. I started yeah. as a producer. Back in those days, a producer was more about design than they were about production. If, I, if I'm making a distinction there. And the distinction okay. being design is like, okay, you're coming up with the systems. You're coming up with the framework, the rules. And a producer is making sure that the schedules are being hit, the tasks are identified correctly, people are working on them. You know, a producer's job at many places, not uniformly, but at many places, is to make the team work together and facilitate the team being able to do their okay. thing. Uh, whereas a designer is more like the hand-waving lunatic who talks ideas out and, and tries to convince other people who are more talented in terms of art, in terms of programming, yeah. to do their ideas. And that was my job. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> You're like, I'm the idea guy. If, yeah, effectively, yeah. yeah. Like- <laughs> I mean, if I, was, if I was talking about film terms, the, a designer, the role is kind of a cross between a writer and the director. You know, on my first day, I got on the elevator. My boss, who assigned me the essay, didn't recognize me at all because I had bleached my hair blonde. I was like, okay, cool. I'm just, I'm going for it. I'm new industry. I'm just yeah, gonna- yeah. Cut, bleach, white hair, basically. <laughs> Completely 
and he did not recognize me at all. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was kind of my first encounter. But yeah, Electronic Arts was a great place to start. And then, so from your perspective, because the the technology or the graphics or what you can build into a game has advanced considerably. So, what makes a game compelling to someone? So, a good game, say in nineteen. 19- 78 is different than one 10 years later and then that is completely different than one now but is there something that links all the good ones together i think that's a really difficult question to answer well so there's sort of a base level of quality uh, polish features if you will depending on the game that's kind of a cost of entry and if a game doesn't hit that you know if a game looks great but has terrible controls no one's going to remember it. If it looks great, has great controls, but has a terrible story, probably it's okay, actually. It could probably do okay, mm-hmm. right? It has all three of those things, controls, gameplay, and story. Now you're starting to get into things that are like, okay, well, this is going to have longer legs. Early on in the days, like probably the 80s and 90s, a lot of the games were about the graphics, feel of the gameplay, like how Twitch, how mm-hmm. it feels, but they're also really influenced by arcades. And that really was a learning curve for people to kind of get over and sort of say, okay, well, you know, these games, these arcade games are made, being made for short play, difficult, so they grab your quarters, right? And not a huge amount of engagement, you know, if you will. Like, there's no story in Centipede. Right. There's no story yeah. in this Pac-Man, right? But those are really successful games because they had tons of character, right? They had tons of character and they played really well. Like, Mrs. Pac-Man is just, like, was huge. Right? A huge inroad into the marketplace. And Pac-Man is still a very, very popular franchise. What was good then in that time period will have legs now, for example, with a certain part of the audience who are interested in retro games. Well, these are the shortcomings of that time period, but that game was really good. So like some of my favorite games are from the early PC days, um, games like Syndicate or System Shock. What was really exciting about them wasn't the graphic fidelity, although it was amazing at the time. Now you look at it and you're like, uh, it was the worlds they created. And this is a common term, the power fantasies that they created for players and let them engage in. And then the stories that wrapped that all together. Once the PlayStation 1 came out and Xbox and all that kind of stuff started rolling. And so now you sort of had this splitting in a broad sense of the market. One was sort of the double A, triple A releases, you know, like a Halo or Last of Us or Uncharted. Some of those things now they're making movies or TV series out of them, right? And then you had sort of the indie market. And the indie market was a place where more experimental games would start. You know, there's sort of a, a semi-derogatory term for one of the types of games, which is called a walking simulator. Please explain. A game like Firewatch, for example. Yeah. You, know, you play a character who works in one of those watchtowers in the forest mm-hmm. to make sure the forest fires, right? It's a story game. And it's a game where you don't do a lot. Like, there's no mystery. There's no yeah. enemies to beat up. Some of those mechanics are there. There are mystery elements, but it's not the core of the game. But you spend a lot of time walking around this beautiful world that the developers have created and the voice acting and the storytelling creates an experience that kind of really people love they get into it and they're like oh man this is really cool i dig it and any games can go with crazy abstract places Um, there's a game called time flies which I'm, i'm excited about which is literally like okay you play as a fly and flies have very short lives yeah. so it's it's you know the the title is kind of a clever play on the, on the existence of a fly kind of stuff but <laughs> as a concept it's sort of like okay that's really cool that can only work at an indie budget level 
Because if you put $10 million into time flies, they'd have to be lasers and teleporters and stuff like that. So, you know, it'd have to be something bigger, go for the more general market. You know, so you've got this wonderful area of ideas where people can, you know, a single person or two people can get together yeah. and create something, these wonderful pieces of art that somebody that's like me is working on a bigger title, like a double A or triple A. Mm. I play those things. I'm like, this is awesome. I can see how video games are expanding as an art form because of these kind of efforts. It's like movies. You got yeah. indie movies and, and big studio temples, and there's room in the market for both of them. And I think video games have gone a very similar path. I do have a, a story question for you. So, like, how does the storyline function in a game? And this is coming because I, I don't have a lot of experience in this space. Like, I am terrible. Like, I can drop in and do Mario Kart every once in a while, and, you know, I can hold my own. But um, so how does it... Do, do you write it in a typical way like say a play or like a movie would play out or is there different elements of the story that behave differently in this medium than it would in a movie or on the stage per se? It can. Yeah. It, it can be done in a very linear way. A game like Uncharted, for example, phenomenal game, really fun action yeah. adventure game. It's told in a linear fashion. You're there at the start <laughs> and maybe there's some flashback yeah. sequences where you play as Nathan Drake as a kid, but generally you're going from A to B. And then it's the tools that you use to communicate the story, right? And there's a lot of tools. So when I'm playing the game, for example, chatter from the main character, yeah. talking about the context he's in, talking to the other characters, that communicates some of the personality of the, of the character, right? Maybe drop some plot beats in there. And then often when you get to the certain milestones, there'll be a full-on cinematic sequence. Yeah. Where as a player, you don't have any control, but the story kind of moves for it. And often we look at those as sort of like rewards. They're called non-interactive sequences at a lot of places I've worked at. You're not part of it anymore. Okay, this is the part where I ride along and I see something cool. Hopefully I'm seeing something cool that isn't something I could also do in game. So you wouldn't want to see an action sequence where something, you know, something Nathan Drake knows Kung Fu. And then you go back to the game and he's plodding along with a gun. As a player, I would want to play that Kung Fu. Right. Uh, and sometimes games do that. Sometimes they make your character cooler in the cutscenes than they are in gameplay. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Which is a dangerous yeah. thing to do because yeah. it's like it violates the kind of fantasy for the player. It's like, I want to, I want to be that guy. Why am I not that guy, that, wow. that hero? Yeah. yeah, so that's one way, a linear kind of thing. There's also games that have branching narratives. The main through line, the main storyline, you're yeah. always going to get to the end. But your journey to that place changes. And those can be branching storylines. So you make a decision at this point. Right. I go left instead of right at this fork. There's conversation trees. So there was a company called Telltale Games that made a big kind of practice out of this. Their, their games were very story driven. And they'd have things like, okay, well, you know, you're talking to a character. You get presented with a number of options of how you reply. And based on your reply, you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to be friendly to you. You're a dick. <laughs> and then they react appropriately in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then there's also this little line that would appear up at the top of the screen. It says basically, Bob will remember this. And you're like, oh, shit, what did I do? Yeah. What, what does that mean? Yeah. And later on in the game, there'll be some consequences or some callbacks to that previous conversation. Bob might refuse to give you ammo for the gun you need in a high-stress situation because you called him a dick earlier. Yeah. And so there's a story like that where it's not – a story being told to the player, it's a story where the player is part author, or at least part editor, I guess, in some yeah. ways, right? So they get to participate in the story, and those are really hard to make, but really interesting to play, because you get more immersed in the world, because 
they recognized the decisions you made and it wasn't just pulling a trigger. If you can take that into Sunday Gold. Okay. How did you build the story for that game? So I wasn't, in, I wasn't on that project. Okay. I wasn't on that project. Okay. That was at the studio that I'm working at, BCOM Studios. Okay. Uh, so that project was already underway when I got there. But the idea for that game, for example, was, yeah, there was a through line. And those kind of adventure games are really interesting because basically you say, well, what does, what's the next thing the hero wants? Yeah. And then how are we going to throw some obstacles in the way? And it could be that you know the, the door lock is jammed and you need to find a drill to drill it out so you can get through the next thing. Oh, but I found a drill, but it's actually in two pieces. I found the drill, but I don't have the drill bit. And then I get there and I'm like, oh crap, I need an extension cord. And so the puzzle solving is the action moments, the action verbs, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of moving the story forward. But then there's also discussions between the characters, conversations between the characters, where they're sort of like, you have a bit of that conversation tree thing. And for, in Sunday Gold, I believe it's more for character flavor than yeah. it's going to be like choice and consequences right. later down the line. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty neat game. I was in a conversation with you where you, you wanted to base a story or tell a story in the Forbidden City in Hong Kong. Oh, yeah. That's not it. That's okay. not Sunday Gold. Are, no. are you allowed to talk about this one? Yeah, well, no, this is a, a passion project yeah. for me. Oh, okay. For me. You know, so my godparents were Chinese and when I was growing up, we spent a lot of time over there and I got a lot of exposure to kind of the mythologies of China. You know, every time I went to Hong Kong, it's like this amazing city with this incredible energy. And this was back in the 80s and 90s. But it was just this a wonderful place of mystery. And it, that always really got me excited. And then when I found out about the walled city, it was Kowloon, right? Yeah. Kowloon? Yeah. Yeah. Think, yeah, it's Kowloon yeah. South. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's a passion project. And I can't remember <laughs> the name of the city. Uh, I, bl- I blame it on the tension of this interview. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, uh, when I heard the story about that, and there was this basically incredibly dense walled city, it wasn't really a walled in per se. It was just like it was a city of very limited scale and verticality, huge verticality. Like they had like I think two wells in the whole place. Mm-hmm. No plumbing. They had wells that they people would draw water from. And and the story of it seemed like a wonderfully intense, compacted place to insert Chinese mythology. An older studio that I had started called Ninetale Studios, and one of the pitches I made to the other partners there was to do a mobile game set in this place. I thought it would be really cool to have sort of an action-adventure title where you're a young teenager kind of thing, and you're basically like a ghost hunter. You're trying to clear up all these mystical mysteries that are happening inside this compacted place. And then more recently, there was a game that came up called Ghostwire Tokyo, and very similar in terms of some of the mechanics of it. It's a first-person game. There's been a ghost invasion of Tokyo. The Japanese have wonderful mythologies there. The yokai is a very super rich monster mythology. And so there's this ghost invasion of Tokyo. And they did an amazing job in the game of modeling Tokyo. And it's a compacted version of Tokyo, but you're walking around the streets. It feels like you're in Tokyo. It's like a PlayStation 5 PC yeah. title. So the graphic fidelity is stupid high. And it's just sort of like, oh, man, like I really... And then I was thinking, well, maybe the next pitch I could do is reach out to the publishers of that and say, well, I want to make Ghostwire Kowloon. Yeah. Kind of thing, you know, yeah. and, and just sort of... Because Ghostwire Tokyo, well, ultimately, they did a great job of setting up an atmosphere. The gameplay ultimately was limited. How, how it expanded over the course of the game. They missed some potential opportunities there. It was like, if you did these things, if you changed the progression of the character... So just a side note, typically in games of a longer length, 
you have a, what's what we call progression of the character in terms of their mechanical abilities. My two-hit punch combo at the start of the game becomes three hits and a kick combo by the end of the game. And I, as a player, can, can develop the character and keep my gameplay experience fresh and growing over the course of the game. Because some of these games are yeah. like 10, 20, 30 hours long. And if you're doing that same two-hit combo at the end of 30 hours, you're a glutton for punishment, right? You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're really kind of masochistic because your, your experience hasn't grown that much mechanically. They, that's where they kind of fell down a bit in Ghostwire. It's like they didn't do enough to mm-hmm. make me, keep me hooked from mechanics side. That would be my one of my pitches. Okay, let's do a different progression thing. Let's set it in this cool place. It's another awesome uh, setting for mythologies. It becomes a franchise at that point. It becomes a thing where you can say, well, Ghostwire, colon, Tokyo, Ghostwire, colon, Kowloon, yeah. Ghostwire, colon, Transylvania. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you can has- go to town. Like, the world has so many awesome mythologies. So what stages this passion project at? Oh, it's early. early yeah. stage. It's only slightly more developed than an elevator pitch. if i was to put together a proper pitch doc i could probably do that pretty quickly i'm not in a place right now where i can sort of say i mean i'm on a project right now i'm busy working Mm -hmm. on a game that's really exciting that's one of my sort of bucket list genres that i always wanted to work on sadly it's it's a further out project but you mentioned someone to me whose name is golden boat but i was also going to ladder that into another question but the people that you learn the most from in your industry, do they tend to be older than you or younger? Hmm. For a long time, it was folks that were older than me. And, and primarily because I'd be looking at their, their expertise or mm-hmm. their experience. Golden Boat is a good example of that. He, he's a, a guy named Paul O'Connor. I worked with him at EA for a year, and then he convinced me to, to go down to California and worked at a studio that he was founding with some friends of his. And uh, and he was a great design mentor in that. He had a, lots of experience doing game design. He had lots of experience with the challenges of game design, mm-hmm. specifically the pitfalls. One of my favorite sayings of his was, don't make your favorite sandwich. I was like, what does that mean? If you took all of your favorite ingredients and put them on one sandwich, it would be a terrible sandwich. And I'm not just like my favorite sandwich as a whole. I like... Uh, Bacon, cheese, melts. Like, okay, that's simple. Yeah. That, that's not a yeah. favorite sandwich in, in this context. It was bacon, cheese, a hamburger, anchovies, pineapple. And then, okay, put that in one sandwich and eat it. It's going to be awful. I always love that expression just because it was, I think it was, works for designers because a lot of designers will try to make their favorite sandwich. They will try to put all their favorite ingredients from other games and put it into one thing and not necessarily step back and look at it and say, well, is this working as as a whole, because this makes sense. You know, one of the things I learned from, from Paul was stripping stuff out is often as valuable as adding stuff in. And building something up from a very small core, from production point of view, is the best way to do it. Because if it works here, you don't need to build this. I'm waving my hands like you can see them. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> if I can get all the fun out of 30% of the exploration, of development exploration, then I don't need to do 70% more work. I got 30% there. Now I've got something that's fun. That's a core of fun. Okay, cool. Now we can play with it. And if it needs some stuff, okay, we'll add it later. But often there's an aspect of polishing a turd. This will just be good if we add animations to it. And it's still not good. This will be better if we add sound effects and visual effects, sparkles on mm-hmm. it. It'll, I'm sure it'll be good then. And what you do is you spend all that money and all that time and you find out that it sucks. Ah, it, yeah. it was never good because the core concept wasn't good. 
Um, I was going to ask you, so so as a perception of gaming on the whole change, like is it attracting people with different backgrounds to it? Yes and no. Let me circle back. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah. you know, on that earlier question, I focused on sort of like the older experienced people because that's yeah. where I've been getting a yeah. lot of information. Working with lots of younger people now because I'm not getting any younger, at least physically. Mentally, yes, but <laughs> physically, no. I think working with the younger people now, I'm getting a lot of energy from them. Yeah. And partly is they don't know their limits. They don't know what to say no to. They are ambitious. They are excited. There's that infectious energy that comes with working with people who are kind of younger and new to the industry, for example. Uh, what's happened with a lot of my peers, at least, at a certain experience level in the industry, it all becomes about the what's not possible. What we can't what we can't do kind of stuff. To loop back on the question you just asked me, am I seeing more people involved in this industry? It's certainly a more viable career path for folks now than it was before. You know, there are now actual schools, Vancouver Film School, yeah. Art Institute. Okay, there's an actual path into game design, into programming, yeah. into art, which I think is really exciting. One of the things that I think as an industry we still suffer from, we need to improve, is there's a lack of diversity. Mm -hmm. And that's both gender as well as people of color, you know, yeah. different perspectives, all that rich perspective that we could ma making games could benefit from. That's something I want to push forward. Yeah. So whenever I'm hiring, my first thing is like, I want somebody who can do this job. Let's say it's a level designer. I want yeah. somebody who can do this level design. I want somebody who can show passion for it. And I want somebody who can show a different perspective on it. Sometimes it's like, well, I'm looking at this person, for example, and they're like, well, they're really experienced, but they're a bit of the grizzly veteran kind of stuff. So while they may add a lot in terms of our production speed, they may not be as willing to challenge some of the things that are there. But I find that younger folks uh, almost always are more excited to make their mark. There's a degree of ambition there, but it's just like that energy is, uh, is really exciting. I would love to do some talks, for example, at school yeah. to the girls. Just to sort of say, yeah, this is a viable career path. And if you're excited about gaming, create your own games. It's a valid path. I think it'd be wonderful to have more perspectives, more viewpoints in the industry and the development side. Well, we have two members that you'd like to give a chat to, part of our live audience right now. But it was like, say one of them was had like a creative background, was a creative writer or just had that mind, but didn't have the technical coding or programming experience. So is that something, say you're sitting across doing an interview, that is that something that can be learned or they, do they need to bring that with them to the job? I think it depends on the role they're they're interviewing for. If I'm looking for like a narrative designer, basically, or a narrative writer. Yeah. If I'm looking for a writer, I want them to be able to write. Obviously, yeah. that's the biggest thing. Is like, can they write something that write good? Can they right. write good? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then you know, there's an aspect of it that can just be taught. Here's the workflow of getting your writing into the game. Either it's they partner with another designer who can do the technical hookups of that. Yeah. If they are open to it and excited about it, they can do the technical mm -hmm. hookups. So I think there's a lot more room for people who aren't necessarily like, I'm not a programmer. And if you asked me to program, I would starve. <laughs> my, my dark secret is out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a hand waver. Because no, like, like, that's the association. It's like, okay, you're in the gaming industry. You know how to program and you know how to code or... No, but no. But if you understand it or you understand how it works... That's just as good as... Yeah, okay. ultimately, there's programmers who are going to places like Waterloo, yeah. uh, you know, getting computer science degrees that are infinitely yeah. more capable and smart than I am when it comes to programming. My job as a designer or as a director now is I need to be able to speak their language. So when they say something, I can, there's two things. One, I can call bullshit if, yeah. I, if, they're, if they're speaking nonsense. Yeah. And two... I understand what they're going towards. So we have a common literacy between the two of us, me and the coder, right? I'm doing a lot of work with animations right now. 
And so I'm talking with the animators and I'm like, okay, well, this is what I want from a gameplay perspective. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want the animations to s- smoothly blend into each other. I want to have it very responsive to the buttons. Can't have a lot of lag. So when I press the button, it doesn't do anything because the animation needs to finish first. So I need to be able to speak that language yeah. to them, right? So same for most of roles like that in the industry. If you're an animator, but you can't speak tech... You're less valuable in some ways than an animator who can speak some tech. They don't have to do the tech, but being able to speak the tech means they can articulate better what they need. And so much of our jobs in gaming are about communication with each other because it's a whole group of disparate people coming together to create one thing. So how do we communicate the shared vision? How do we communicate what we want? That's a lot of my job is facilitating that conversation, facilitating that communication. No, that's very cool. Yeah, because I I didn't know if there was a programming angle to your job, but if you have the ability to go between worlds, that's an incredible skill set. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun. Again, one of the exciting things about being in finance was learning about new companies, right? Mm-hmm. Learning about new technologies. That's been a primary drive for me throughout my whole game design career. I've worked in multiple genres of games. Mm-hmm. So I've worked in sports, first person shooters, third person yeah. action adventures. And every one of those has been like, okay, this is a game I, a game genre I've enjoyed. Now I can work on it and, and hopefully add something to games as a whole. And that, that's been a real driver for me, the opportunity to learn and grow my skill set. So in some ways, it's like the jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. Yeah. So you get some folks who dive deep in first-person shooters. That's all they enjoy making. That's all they make. And they become domain experts. And so I wouldn't say I'm a domain expert in anything in particular, but I'm a domain generalist, if that makes sense. I think that works for my role, and it certainly works for my interest level. <laughs> yeah. So parents on the whole, they seem militantly obsessed with limiting screen time. However... Your job is to almost encourage the opposite. <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, how do you like work with those two opposing forces? Yeah, that's a challenging one. Often the screen time umbrella conflates the different types of screen times. So there's sort of the passive screen time. Yep. I'm watching iPad or what have you. And then there's the interactive screen time where it's like, okay, they're playing a game or something. There, there's some thinking going on. There's some interactions. And then there's the sort of the creation screen time. Uh, my daughter, she likes to make movies, mm-hmm. and then she likes to edit the movies and stuff like that. Or, you know, she likes playing around with some of those those creation tools, the art yeah. tools. Like. Yeah. But those three screen times are often lumped into one, which is this monolith of screen time bad. Yeah. From a parental example point of view, I'm on the screen a lot. Partly it's my job, partly it's my old eyes. Like I'm getting to the point where I, I have to use reading glasses for reading books. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like acknowledging that I'm, my eyes are getting older. So I, I do it on the iPad right. where I can resize the text. Okay, that's screen time. And when I'm on that iPad, why is it okay? But my daughter can't be. I know. Right? Yeah. Um, I think it's a real challenge. Like I don't know how, how what it was like when you were growing up, but when, certainly when I was growing up, there was a lot less screens available, right? The TV yeah. was there, yeah. but that was easy for the parents to restrict. They're like, no TV, period. You, yeah. know, you didn't have a portable TV you could hold in your hand. Once games came on, I know I was a giant pain in the ass to my parents because I was on the video games all the time, right? Or when the Apple II Plus was in there, I was in my room all the time because it had the computer in my room, which was, in retrospect, probably not the best place for it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I know it aggravated the heck out of my parents, but it was also... Much lower resolution, much yeah. more primitive in terms yeah. of what it was. You know, the Apple II Plus was two colors, green and black. That was the screen colors, right? So it's like, okay, well, there's not a lot you can do with that. Uh, but now I, I look at a, 
an iPad yeah. and it's got like 16 million colors. It's like, oh, cool, 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 cool. So it's it's tough. I think the perspective is like, okay, well, did I have a lot of screens when I was growing up? Yeah. Did I end up okay? I like to think so. Yeah. But <laughs> external witnesses may beg to differ. But yeah. but I think it, it really it depends on the kid and it depends on the content they're consuming. Like if there's an interactive element or an output, you know, in terms of like a movie or a piece of art or something like that, I'm way more inclined to be lenient on that kind of stuff personally yeah even even back then right until vhs's came out when you watched cartoon hour that was it it was the hour on saturday right whereas now there's endless content it's not i have to watch it at x time it's i can watch the same thing over and over again you don't have necessarily that gate that box around the passive content because instead of it being time gated single viewing now it's untime gated available all the time Mm -hmm. unlimited reviewing I think that makes the allure of passive time much stronger, much bigger. If you just say, okay, you have screen time from 4.10 to 4.50, suddenly you're bean counting their minutes. Yeah. And you're like, okay, then you're that parent that you hate. And, you're like, <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing too is like, we couldn't figure out why she was mad. And she's like, I just get into the game. like, mm. And then you just tell me to stop and I got to stop all this work that I've done. And then she's like, I've got to start over. Yeah. In a sense, for her, it's like it's a creation element. You're becoming part of the game. Roblox or Minecraft or whatever she's playing. Whatever your activity is, it takes a little warm up. You got to get going. Oh, yeah. And then. I have yeah. that problem huge. Like uh, in my current role right now, I've got like tons of meetings. For when I'm trying to work, I almost need to do like a 10, 15 minutes of like not that stuff. Often that takes the form of just like, surfing my rss feeder and looking through news items maybe reading an article maybe watching a movie trailer mm-hmm. i'm like a total movie trailer junker junkie <laughs> uh, that's, like that's mad, an old car that's, that's like a mad max term <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know just like i need to not think about work so i can clear the yeah. cobwebs a bit and then okay now i can settle down look at this thing and sort of tune out the external noise if that makes sense yeah and i find when i'm doing that when i'm actually starting to dig into it it's really easy for me to kind of get knocked out of that rhythm and what i'm ultimately going towards is a flow state there's a famous psychologist who talks a lot about flow it's super interesting but i think the same thing happens with me for games is i'll get into a game and i'll get into that into a flow state where i'm just okay i'm absorbed rocking it out i've got the right rhythm and then my wife will come in and ask me a question and i'll be just like wow I'll yeah. growl, you know, yeah. and it's like, I'm like, I'm doing something. You know? <laughs> and it's like, I'm playing a game. <laughs> yeah. So me reacting like growling is a total dick move. <laughs> it's like, it's, but, but I think it's like your daughter is talking about, yeah. right? There's, there's that flow state, that, yeah. that place she's gotten to where she's immersed in it. And, she, and, you know, sometimes it takes a while to get there. And once you're there, it's like, oh, I have to leave. Yeah. And, and it's kind of like a bit of sadness that you have to step out of it. For me, it's like when I've had like long sessions, like all night sessions on yeah. games and stuff. When somebody wakes me up or kicks me out of that state, I, maybe initially I'll be a bit grumpy, but then I'll be like, oh, thank you. Yeah, Because <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. it got its hooks in me. Yeah. And they talk about gaming addictions. Mm-hmm. At one end of the spectrum, that flow state can lead to an addictive place yeah. because you like being yeah. in that flow state and you don't want to leave it. And you're willing to sacrifice other things to stay in that state or get back to that state yeah. as soon as possible. I think your Twitter feed is really, I, I went down through it. I was entertained and I also <laughs> clicked through on a few of the links on some of the articles you posted. And, mm-hmm. and one of the ones was Brian, Eno on NFTs. So mm. 
like I still don't fully understand them. I was listening to this guy. They did it's I, th- I think it's called Robo Rampage, but you can buy NFTs to like get your custom armor or whatever for your robots. So like, where is there a space for NFTs in your mind for gaming? No, like not at all. No. Any game that is doing NFT stuff right now is replicating functionality that's been done up to 10 years ago in terms of inventory yeah. kind of stuff. I think a lot of NFT games are coming at it from a bad faith perspective, right? Okay. So they're saying, hey, you can own this thing. It's yours. A, it's not mine. It's a receipt that's mine, but it also it, it's nothing. And I think they're using those kind of hooks to get people who aren't, who don't understand it. Uh, the way a pyramid scheme works is you get people who are less informed to invest into the idea. And the more they do, then they go, okay, I got to get more people involved in this. And they get more people. And that's literally yeah. the essence yeah. of a pyramid scheme. And that's what NFTs are. An NFT in and of itself is worthless. The only value that's associated with it is the marketplace. So there's this notion that, well, you can you know, spend time or money and earn this NFT or acquire this NFT. Okay, well, in the game, it's got limited utility, right? So, okay, it's a piece of graphics, right? It makes your armor look more impressive. It's got knife blades on it. Cool. Does it have any inherent value beyond that? No. But if you could sell it to somebody else, okay, now it has value. But that's assuming that there's an interest in that particular visual variation of it. That's assuming there's a marketplace for it, like that people will trade those things up. So much of it revolves around the notion of artificial scarcity. That the hint is in the name. It's artificial. The only people who benefit from artificial scarcity are the guys who run the markets. Everybody else is trading yeah. on them. Every time you trade in an NFT, you pay somebody a fee, right? Or you right. pay multiple fees. It's about building up this avalanche of uninformed suckers, basically, who can all go in there and say, oh, man, I got to get NFTs because I'm going to make mad yeah. bank. And there's no place for it to go. There's been a ton of investment in gaming yeah. that is NFT related. Pretty much universally right now, NFTs are loathed. I have yet to talk to a game developer who likes talking to one of these NFT blockchain bros. Inevitably, money guys who don't understand gaming, but to see a place for that kind of, to create that marketplace. But it's an, an artificial marketplace. If it's not making your gameplay experience better, then it's just an investment tool. And that's not what gamers play games for. They don't play games as investment tools. Play games to play games. They have that transportive journey to some place where they have, you know, it's that fantasy world. I don't think NFTs are ever going to get widespread adoption. I think almost all of the NFT games that are out there are going to go away probably within five years at most. I think the big companies that have been looking into it, like Ubisoft, Electronic Arts, they've been absolutely pillared in terms of their social presence. Like, you know, people are just like, what are you doing? This is, these are not necessary things. This is stupid. Bad for the environment. There's so few upsides that it's sort of like it's clearly a cash grab by execs. And for a while, like even last year, like it's clear that anytime an exec was talking about NFTs, they're saying what their shareholders wanted to hear. Oh, great. I can extract more wealth from this company in the form of dividends or in yeah. the form of a liquid sales of shares. And so anything that drives the price up, that's good. doesn't matter if it's the game company is doing better or if the game company's on fire, but they got NFTs. If the price goes up of the shares, I can get my money out. And those are conflicting viewpoints, right? But certainly none of the peers I've talked to or 
for that or reading about them online, for example, they don't see any value in NFTs. And it's a solution in search of a problem. And that's blockchain. Blockchain, cool idea for a technology, but very few practical applications. I think it's, just, it's, I think it's the latest snake oil. So I'm not, I'm not very big on them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That reminds me, I'm reading a book right now called Calling Bullshit. And that's the name of the book. Yeah. And it's about uh, a skeptical view of living in a data-driven world. It's a fascinating book because it talks a lot about developing the tools that allow you to look at a statistic, a sample. Yeah. You know, most people don't like mangoes. Mangoes aren't people's favorite fruits. Yeah. And you could say that and, and somebody would say, well, what, what's that based on? A sample size of one. Yeah. I talked to a guy doing my podcast and he said yeah. he didn't like mangoes. The book outlines a lot of skeptical ways of looking at the way data is presented because the way data is presented is the way it'll be interpreted. But selectively presenting different sets of data yeah. takes one number and transforms it into different meanings altogether. And it's a fascinating book because uh, it's just like, yeah, because there's so much of what we hear uh, these days is about data. It's, you know, okay, the U.S. is doing a, a bill that will reduce the average family's taxes by $4,000. That statement sounds like, oh, wow, as yeah. an average family, a median-sized family, I'm going to make four grand more. But the numbers drive might be behind that is that actually it's one that improves the taxes of the richest people and averaged out over the population saves everybody four grand. But the middle-class families don't yeah. save anything at all. But for the average person, it actually jacks up their house. Average, yeah. Per- yeah, yeah, exactly. For the yeah. average person, they're they're saving taxes. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's it's a yeah. it's a really neat book. I encourage a read. It's just a funny title mm-hmm. too. Uh, do you want to tackle a few fun ones? Sure. To finish off. Sure. This is awesome. To your mind, what do you think a kook is? Hmm. What I, when I think kook, I think like um, it reminds me of skiing. Like, so I was I was a ski racer yep. when I was younger, and. Uh, a kook was somebody like, you know, somebody who, who kind of a wild, wild, not great skier. Uh, and for a while, we used to call them Gorbies. You know, for some reason, we thought Gorbachev was a good name for a, ska- a person who couldn't <laughs> ski very well. And we shortened that to Gorbies. <laughs> and kook was kind of in that category when uh, when, uh, when we were ski racing. So similar, yeah. But generally not a positive wild card. <laughs> Fair enough. No, yeah, yes. Why am I asking? Yeah, well, it's, you said self-serving. So. The first part of the podcast is kook jester. Yeah. And... Because it has a similar meaning in surfing. It's the guy that gets in the way on the waves. Or after you leave the splash zone and you paddle out, you think you're better than you actually are. And you get get in the way. Yeah, that's cool too. But then every dictionary version is like weird, kind of out there, different thinker. So that's, there's the double meaning associated with it. So depending on your sporting activities, it's a bad thing. But on your interests and eccentricities, it might be a good thing. Where my head jumped up immediately was the skiing example, yeah. right? I think there's a term that used to be that got totally co-opted. Uh, well, for, for the longest time, it was a negative one. Which yeah. was like nerd. Yeah. Right. Now it's 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 a weak insult at best, yeah. and but more often it's a, a it's a compliment badge of pride. Yes. You know, it's like okay, yeah, like I'm, and I, I don't mind saying like yeah, I'm a total nerd for comics and games yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Like that's who I am. Uh, you know, and I'm and I'm totally down with that. I know I've said stuff like I'm totally kooky for that. Yeah. I'm totally kooky for lasagna or whatever yeah. like that's 100 percent in my vocabulary <laughs> you know <laughs> and i always love terms like that that are just like kind of wacky yeah like the way you described it like dictionary definition like just like pooched like okay i pooched that 
Yeah. It's like, okay, as a verb, it doesn't yeah. make sense. Yeah. But, <laughs> it's, uh, but you it, know what you mean when you say it. Yeah. Like, I and, know what, yeah. And, and everybody gets it. And it's sort of like a, uh, a stylish saying, you know, yeah. and I, I love those kind of stylish sayings. Like I have a, a list of words that aren't words, but sound like they could be words. Probably like a hundred words. It's always growing. It's tons of fun. Like I love those kind of expressions and stuff. And last one, do you want to answer a question about music? Sure, I'll okay. try. Okay. So ask a version of this one to everyone, just in terms of what their, their background is or, you know, their interests. But if you could build a game around a band or an album, what would it be? Oh, wow. That's tough. Because my music tastes are all over the place. Yeah. Like, I remember when I was a teenager, a friend introduced me to Tommy, and that kind of blew my mind. But they made a pinball machine of that already. So yeah. a couple of pinball machines. Pinball Wizard, right? I think the bands I like the most these days, it's like the Chemical Brothers, Massive Attack, Queens of the Stone yeah. Age. Ooh, Massive I, Attack would be a good sound. It would be really it would be an intense it would be really, show. It would be a, yeah, it would be yeah, a really intense, intense, intense show. And, and, and if you add the lyrical component yeah. to it, which is so often about sociopolitical stuff, that could be a really interesting soundtrack to a game. I have no idea what the genre would be, you know, like maybe like an adventure game where it's like Queens of the Stone Age. I could see that being an action game, you know, just because yeah. of the energy or Eagles of Death Metal or something like that. Like, I know, I know these are a bit out there. Well, I, no, but I, I know these bands. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm not going to go for Electric Six. I think they're a bit too edgy. They made some great music games before, right? Mm-hmm. But they're anthologies, like yeah. rock, a Guitar yeah. Hero yeah. and a rock band, where you kind of had a, the power fantasy of playing with your favorite band and playing your favorite tunes. That would be that would be really interesting. Massive Attack would probably be my number one choice for that. Okay. Although Porno for Pyros might be interesting, or Jane's Addiction. Yeah. <laughs> that would be intense. I think a lot of bands would make really good game soundtracks. Yeah. But because they're so often so different, it's like, is this a game that's wrapped, integrated into the yeah. music? Or is this a game with music on top of it? You know what I mean? Right. The integrated yeah. is probably the nicer, holistic view of it. Sometimes their music changes so much from song to song. I'd be, I would love to make a game that Massive Attack wrote the soundtrack for. Well, I don't know if they're still around. But uh, <laughs> maybe Chemical Brothers then. Yeah. <laughs> they're still around. I think we have tons of stuff to work with here. Awesome. So thanks. That was a lot of fun. I mean, obviously, as a host, you make it pretty easy for me. It's really fun talking to you about this stuff. And also, as a solitary being who doesn't talk about this stuff amongst other adults, it's always exciting to talk to another adult about this stuff. (laughs) You can't just let it go. (laughs) Yeah, you got to talk about, like, your quirky interests. So, Brent, thanks. Thank you. It was a wonderful opportunity. Cheers.